when you have access to 3.6 million records, you have a very diverse, uh, very representative database. Welcome back to Peace Grid. I'm Zach Hodges. And I'm Al Shanklin. And today we have a special episode for you. We're discussing the landmark paper, The Phoenix Sepsis Criteria. In this two-part series, we'll talk about how the Phoenix Sepsis Criteria was derived and applications for clinicians at the bedside. Yes, and we are absolutely thrilled to have Dr. Nelson Sanchez-Pinto here to talk with us today. Dr. Sanchez-Pinto is a pediatric intensivist at Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago, where he's also an associate professor of pediatrics and a Warren and Eloise Batts research scholar at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. He received his medical degree in Barcelona before residency at Cincinnati Children's and fellowships in both critical care and research at the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. Dr. Sanchez Pinto co-led an international group of researchers in the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Phoenix Sepsis Definition Task Force for the development and validation of the new Phoenix criteria for pediatric sepsis and septic shock that was featured at the recent 2024 SCCM conference. Yes, we're so excited to share this conversation with a leader in our field on this core topic of pediatric sepsis. Let's get right to the content. Dr. Sanchez Pinto, we are absolutely thrilled to be home from Phoenix and recording this episode with you. Our listeners have heard your bio, but can you tell us who you are and include something that you enjoy outside of medicine? I'm a pediatric critical care physician. I'm originally from Spain. I'm an avid snowboarder, which it's a little bit hard to keep up with living in the Midwest, but we always start to make a few nice trips during the year. So we have one scheduled for the Northwest coming up and then Colorado towards the end of the season. Very fun. You have a background in bioinformatics. I'd love to know how you became interested in that area and how did this work lead to you helping develop this new definition of pediatric sepsis? I was fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. I started getting interested in informatics as a resident in Cincinnati Children's. Back then, they were sort of leading the charge with a lot of pediatric informatics work that when nobody knew what that even was. And I fell also in love with critical care as a clinical specialty, working with Hector Wong, Derek Wheeler, way back when, this I'm talking 15 years ago. And for me, it was sort of a natural marriage between data-intense environment of the ICU and informatics and data science, how they merged together. Hector was incredibly encouraging that I went down the sort of the data science informatics route. That's what took me to do my fellowship at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, where Randa Wetzel back then was one of the few intensivists who was leading a large data science research group. And so the rest is history in terms of being in the right time, the right place. I started doing this before NIH had ever funded any data science grants. So it was in a great spot when in 2015, they started the Big Data to Knowledge funding program, which is what eventually led to me being funded by NIH and and leading a busy data science informatics research lab here at Lurie Children's. It, it was part of being in that world of informatics and data science and having led multi-center projects where we collected electronic health record data from large children hospitals that led some of the leaders in the Society of Critical Care Medicine Pediatric Sepsis Definition Task Force to invite me to participate in that important task force to help develop this international database, which is the basis of our of our work. And so along with Tal Bennett, who's been one of my long-term collaborators, another phenomenal data scientist, informaticist, and critical care. He's at the University of Colorado. Together, we sort of led this data group within the task force that collected what eventually became a 3.6 million pediatric hospital encounter database with children from 10 sites, including international sites in Bangladesh, Colombia, 
Kenya, China, and then in the U.S., which was the basis for our data-driven approach to the definitions. Oh, wonderful. And we're so excited to talk about this, especially because this is not just for the United States. This is for the world. Before we get started, do you have any specific conflicts of interest that we need to keep in mind? No, my, my work is funded by the NIH, which is the usual disclosure. But other than that, I don't have any financial disclosures related to sepsis, the definitions themselves. Excellent. That sounds great. Let me give us a case and then we'll get to your first question. So we have an eight-year-old female admitted to the PICU with fever, tachycardia, and hypotension that somewhat improved with volume resuscitation. She received blood cultures and empiric antibiotics. Initial lab workup is notable for leukocytosis, but comprehensive labs are pending. She's admitted for close monitoring due to ongoing vital sign abnormalities consistent with SIRS and possible development of severe sepsis. So with that backdrop, would you help us understand what diagnostic criteria existed before the Phoenix criteria to define pediatric sepsis? So before the Phoenix criteria, the last accepted widespread definitions were the consensus definitions that emerged from the International Pediatric Sepsis Consensus Conference from 2005, sometimes colloquially known as the Goldstein Criteria. He was the first author, but by no means the most important author or, or member of that group. So we try to avoid uh, talking about that and using a name. So we usually refer to them as the IPSCC, and that's how you will see it if you read the Phoenix publication. That's how we refer to those 2005 IPSCC criteria. The IPSCC criteria was grounded on the sepsis 2 definition that the adults had established back in 2001, so about four years earlier, and it was mostly focused on these two concepts. One is SIRS, which is the idea that if you measure systemic inflammation response syndrome using things like fever, white count, tachypnea, things like that, and combine that with suspected infection, the combination was what we would consider sepsis at the time. And then if that led to organ dysfunction, that would be considered severe sepsis. And that was the approach taken by the pediatric group in 2005 to have those different levels. So you have SIRS, which would be regular sepsis, then organ dysfunction, which would be severe sepsis, and then the subset of those with cardiovascular dysfunction, which were considered septic shock patients. So I'd like to understand what were the limitations of this, and then you know, why was this update needed? I think there are several limitations. Number one, those definitions were absolutely 100% expert-based. They were not based on data. They were not based on any specific data-driven approach or systematic review or anything of the matter. It was just a group of guys, mostly male, mostly white, mostly in the U.S., sitting around a table and making these definitions. That was issue number one. Issue number two is that the SIRS-based criteria, the regular sepsis criteria in pediatrics, as extremely nonspecific, right? We have a lot of kids who meet SIRS criteria who have a simple infection, not even a severe infection. Kids with mild forms of bronchiolitis may meet SIRS criteria. And so technically we would be uh, calling sepsis to a patient that at the bedside we would not usually call septic. And the third one, I think, which is the face validity, right? For us intensivists in the ICU, when we see a patient and we call it, oh, this patient has sepsis, we certainly are not referring to the kid with a mild infection with a little bit of tachypnea, a little bit of elevated white count. What we're really talking about is a kid who has a sort of life-threatening form of a severe infection, right? And maybe we, you know, historically we haven't pinned that down to a specific conceptual definition, but when we see it in front of us, it's a kid who is really, really sick, who may die from this severe infection from usually not only because of the infection, but also because of the host response, severe host response that is also causing secondary injury. And so the face validity of the Sears concept really never made sense. And finally, in terms of face validity, 
I don't think I ever called a kid, oh, he has severe sepsis when I was at the bedside, right? I would just say, he's had sepsis, right? In the ICU, you have sepsis. You imply that it was severe. There's this idea that there's a mild form of sepsis didn't never made sense to me. So I was not one to use the term severe in front of sepsis. I would just say sepsis, but I was referring to what conceptually was severe sepsis, which which is that life-threatening component. And implied within that definition was the concept of organ dysfunction. Although I guess until 2016, until the adult sepsis 3, we didn't sort of explicitly put that in the definition. Now, this is not just a new illness scoring system. This is an international consensus, right? This is international consensus criteria. How do you put together the group of people that's defining this? You need to make sure that you're representing different countries, different levels of expertise, different areas of thought. How did everyone come together? Yeah, this is a, a very important piece. So as I mentioned, some of the limitations of the 2005 IPSCC was that it was very much expert-based, but also with a very narrow scope of expertise in terms of mostly U.S.-based, mostly critical care-based. So as we wanted to update the definitions, wanted to use more of a data-driven approach, but also ensure that we had phase validity across the care continuum, not only for pediatric patients anywhere in the world, but in different settings, we wanted to have a very representative group of people being part of this process. So this is all started in 2018, I think, when Jerry Zimmerman was the president of SCCM at the time. The publication of the adult sepsis 3 criteria had just come out a couple of years earlier, and he was very intentional and wanted to do a similar approach in pediatrics in the sense of move from the serious-based criteria to moving to an organ dysfunction-based criteria for all the reasons that we discussed in terms of face validity. And wanted to do it with the large representative group and overcome the limitations of that original IPSCC criteria. So he invited a number of people to lead the task force. He recruited Scott Watson, who is a phenomenal researcher, Seattle Children's, great connector, everybody knows Scott. Lorenz Schlappbach, who was at the time pediatric critical care physician in Australia and Brisbane, but now is back in his hometown, Zurich, in Switzerland, where he's the head of the PICU there in, in the main hospital in Zurich. Those were the chairs of the task force. And then the vice chairs were Lauren Soares, who is the current president of SCCM. She's a nurse scientist, an advanced nurse practitioner who works uh, here at Lurie Children's. And then Andrew Argent, who's an intensivist in Cape Town and South Africa. So you can see right off the bat, just the four chair and vice chairs of the task force already representing a huge swath of the field. They were tasked with inviting task force members that, again, represented the vast field of pediatrics. So they invited emergency medicine experts. They invited infectious diseases experts. They invited a neonatologist to be sort of representative, even though this is not encompassing of neonatal sepsis. We needed somebody who could bring that perspective, especially for the younger age groups. Obviously, nurse scientists, as I was saying, a very diverse international task force membership from Europe, from Africa, from Asia, from Latin America. And then within those groups, also folks with different specialties. So methodologists, folks who've led large systematic reviews, folks who've done international surveys, and then folks who've done data science and data-driven work like myself and Tal Bennett, who then sort of carried that part of the work. So a very intentional group of folks. We ended up being 35 members. We first met in Salzburg in 2019. And that was the official initiation of the task force that then took uh, a little less than five years in taking the sort of the ideas, the original ideas from that conceptual form into the new definitions and the new criteria that were just published. Oh, absolutely. Now, I want to dive into the methods here. And broadly, this is such a fabulous example of a big data science project. You've got 10 sites, all different countries, all different care sites. You've got this fabulous, well-harmonized database where you put everything together. And then you were faced with selecting variables and using 
machine learning methods as opposed to conventional statistics to come up with your final product. I'm curious why you used variables from existing scoring systems and why you started with existing scoring systems like the VIS, like PLOD, instead of just selecting variables from scratch. That's an excellent question. So I'll start with the fact that the methodology actually didn't start with the database. The methodology of the task force started with the systematic review and the international survey, right? So we first wanted to understand what had been studied before in pediatrics and what were the type of variables associated with poor outcomes in pediatric sepsis and also the variables that were associated with diagnosis of sepsis as risk factors in the literature. And from that, a few themes emerged, but mostly that organ dysfunctions were primarily the variables associated with poor outcomes in sepsis. Not surprising for anybody. The next piece was the international survey, over 2,000 respondents from around the world, where they were asked essentially face validity-wise, what do you consider sepsis at the bedside? And by and large, the majority embraced the idea that sepsis was life-threatening organ dysfunction in patients with an infection. So you have an infected patient in front of you, and if they have a life-threatening organ dysfunction, that's what you would call sepsis. There were some discrepancies where the organ dysfunction could be counted if it was at the site of the primary infection, say a pneumonia that was causing severe respiratory dysfunction. Does that count as life-threatening organ dysfunction if it's local? It has to be remote or more than one organ. There was some variability there, but by and large, if you make a cut of what you consider sepsis, what emerged to the top in this survey was life-threatening organ dysfunction. So that's what we took as the priming pieces to the database study, right? And so the reason why we picked existing organ dysfunctions is because they already are known by the community. They have been validated in various populations and they are already embraced as accepted measures of organ dysfunction. They are capturing, by and large, the most important organ dysfunctions with the most common variables that are available. So we're not going to reinvent the wheel and find something completely out of the blue that suddenly was going to be the end-all be-all, particularly because to do that, we probably had to go to find really weird variables that are actually not maybe not available in a lot of places. Maybe we can get a lot of those variables in fancy academic medical center, white tower mm -hmm. type medical centers or universities, but not really available around the globe in the way that we wanted. So that's why we sort of grounded this into the established validated organ dysfunction scores and use those as the starting point for the data-driven approach. We did include some of the ones that are not maybe as commonly used in day-to-day. -day. So some of the common ones like PILA, PSOFA, more recently the podium were definitely there. We also wanted to include some things that were maybe not as commonly used, but have variables that are commonly obtained in critically ill patients like the DIC score or the shock index, just to look and see whether those would rise to the top as important subcomponents of organ dysfunctions that were associated with that idea of life-threatening organ dysfunction in patients with infection. Excellent. So now you've got your variables and they've got face validity and they've got prior studies. You said which variables rose to the top. Can you talk about how you determine the most significant variables and why you chose the methods that you chose? Yeah, absolutely. So what we did first is look at how these organ dysfunction subcomponents, so say the cardiovascular criteria from podium or the IPSCC criteria or PSOFA, we use a subset of our database. So out of the 3.6 million encounters, we used 25% of those patients. And we just looked at how often the patients who met those criteria had increased mortality. So this is a very 
straightforward comparisons head-to-head -head in terms of performance of those subcomponents at discriminating mortality amongst patients in the database. And we use all patients, both with, with infection and without infection, because we went also to see if there was a difference between those two groups. Maybe the cardiovascular dysfunction in a patient that is not infected that leads to higher mortality is different from the cardiovascular dysfunction that leads to mortality in a patient who is infected. And we wanted to see that difference between patients. We did not find a big difference between the two groups, but it was good to see specifically which organ dysfunction criteria were really associated with mortality in those infected patients. So based on that approach and using the metric of area under the precision recall curve, we chose the variables that had the higher performance, again, based on the area under the precision recall curve, and secondarily looking at the area under the receiver operating curve. We chose the AUPRC, or area under the precision recall curve, for two reasons. Number one is because what we had in front of us is what we called an imbalanced data set. Imbalanced means that when you're trying to discriminate an event of interest, in this case death, People sometimes ask, why did you use mortality for sepsis? And it's because we're operationalizing the concept of life-threatening organ dysfunction in patients with infection, right? We have patients with infection, and we're interested in the organ dysfunction using these components, and we're grounding it on the life-threatening component, something that leads to death, right? So we use death as our outcome, and then because there's an imbalance in the data set in, in the sense that if you look at all patients who are infected, the vast majority, in fact, 99% of the patients with infections in the hospital, children with infection in the hospital will survive. A little bit less than 1% will die in that setting. Uh, so there's a 99 to 1 imbalance in that data set. If you use something like the area under the receiver operating curve, sometimes that can lead to overestimation of the performance of a model. It's very easy to predict that something is not going to be a death and that will inflate your area under the receiver operating curve. That cannot happen when you use AUPRC because AUPRC is grounded on the prevalence of the thing that you're trying to prevent, right? That you're trying to predict. So because it's grounded on the prevalence, then it doesn't matter whether it's, you know, it's a balanced data set or an imbalance, it will capture the, the performance of the model in relation to that prevalence of what we're trying to predict. In this case, mortality, again, a little bit less than 1% in high resource settings, something around 3% or so in low resource settings. Again, imbalance, even in low resource settings. So that's why we use the AUPRC. So what we were trying to achieve was finding that those organ dysfunctions with the higher AUPRC and also a decent area under the receiver operating curve, AUC, at discriminating mortality amongst infected patients. And again, some of those subcomponents had similar performance within the same organ system. And we're trying to find one or two per organ system, especially if they didn't overlap. So an example of that was VIS, which was an interesting piece for us. So VIS, the vasoactive inotrope score, is essentially a combination of all the vasoactives that a patient is receiving normalized so that you can get a single score that groups all the vasoactives, right? So you have some normalization factors that make it so that norepinephrine and, say, vasopressin have the same units, you know, artificial units, so that you can add them up and, and get a score, right? Many of our listeners are probably very familiar with VIS, but it's worth explaining it. We had an issue, which is that the way vasoactive inotrope scores are recorded in many databases, and particularly in international databases, is very different. And it's not always easy to ascertain what's the actual dosing that the patients are receiving. This is a common problem. And also, these are drips that often change rapidly, so they're very dynamic. So it's hard to calculate on a constant basis. Potentially, every 10, 5 minutes, you, you may be having different scores, right? And so one of the things that, as we were doing this, one of the things that was requested by the group was whether we could just use a proxy of the VIS by just adding the number of vasoactives that the patients were on. So one, two, three, four, where the score was just the number of vasoactives they were. So we used this proxy of the VIS score in our database. We were surprised that when we looked at the performance of the VIS with the whole range of the score, 
against just the count of vasoactives that the patients were having, the AUPRC was almost exactly the same. That's in the supplements of the paper. You can look at those. So almost exactly the same performance. So when we had these two very similar performing scores, what we did is we went to the task force of 35 members, and through a Delphi process, we voted on which one we wanted to keep in the database. And in this case, the count was maintained. The other discussion around the Delphi process there was that the PILA2 score, which only uses the mean arterial pressure and lactate, also rose to the top in terms of performance, very similar to the vasoactive Eintrup score. And interestingly, it doesn't overlap because the PILA2 does not have vasoactives in it. We had an opportunity to either include the PILA2 with or without vasoactives, and it would still be, the performance would still be acceptable. Now, when you combine PILA2 with the VIS, the performance was much better. So we went to the task force and, and asked whether they would be okay with us combining the vasoactives. And the discussion that was a part of the task force was, well, you know, many sites, especially in low resource settings, may not have access to vasoactive inotrope scores or vasoactives right away. So should we or should we not include therapy as part of the criteria? Long story short, everybody felt strongly that by and large, vasoactives are accessible, particularly in referral centers, even in low resource settings, and that because it's such a strong predictor of mortality in patients with sepsis, that we should include it and, and include in general other interventions like most other organist function scores have done in the past, SOFA, PSOFA, PILA2, etc. So we decided to stick with the precedent and keep the vasoactives, and the combination of PILA2 and the count of vasoactives was what ended up forming the cardiovascular organ dysfunction in, in the Phoenix criteria. Oh, excellent. You've touched on something here that I think is really interesting, which is even with the perfect clean database, when you move forward with making these scores, you need to make difficult decisions about how am I going to select a variable that's charted every five minutes, right? How am I going to take what I can when huge swaths of patients are missing the granular data going from, can we get all the vasoactive infusion rates to now we're counting? And then how am I going to deal with patients where for select time intervals, I don't have the variables that I need, but they may have been charted just a few hours prior. Can you touch on how you approach these questions? Yeah, so again, the primary focus is making this as data-driven as possible. But obviously, sometimes you have to make some of these decisions. And instead of making these decisions in terms of two researchers deciding how to move forward, mm -hmm. we leverage the expertise of the task force to guide us towards what would be the most valid approaches in terms of face validity, criterion validity, etc. Which ultimately, these 35 folks were representing hopefully the field at large. And so we wanted to, as much as possible, be true to what the field was looking for. And so that was a huge privilege to have this immense brain resource accessible to us to help us guide through some of these decisions. And these decisions were not, you know, out of the blue. We were presenting data, presenting alternatives based on the data. These were consensus decisions, but made in a data-informed way. So I think that's a very powerful combination of expertise at the bedside, face validity at the bedside, with hundreds of thousands of patients' data that the experts were exposed to to make these decisions. That was an important piece. For missingness, for example, we use a common approach in critical care and acute care research, which is using 
the last one carried forward approach. So, for example, we haven't had a you know FIO2 charted in the last two, three hours, but it was charted four hours ago. We know that likely the patient still the patient still mechanical ventilator or still on BiPAP or whatever. We assume that if it hasn't been charted again, it's because that's still intervention that the patient is receiving. So we can carry forward that FIO2 from three hours or four hours ago and assume that that's still what they're receiving. We've done validation of those assumptions mm-hmm. where we, for example, look and see, you know, we have a PAO2. We look for the most recent FIO2 that was three or four hours ago. And then we look at the next FIO2 after the PAO2 and still tends to be the same or slightly larger, right? Mm-hmm. But we're using the prior one because that's how you calculate PF ratios. And so these type of approaches is something that Tell, myself, and others in, in the data science group are very familiar with. We've used many times to impute. And it's a very grounded way of doing it. When a variable is completely missing, we took an approach that is very pragmatic and it's very common in organ dysfunction scoring, which is when something is completely missing, we assume it's normal. Is it true all the time? Maybe not, but that's not the point. The point is that for the most part, when you assume normality for missing variables, the scores tend to perform well. And others have done studies where they've looked at using multiple imputation methods, so like data-driven approaches of estimating what a variable may have been if you had had it measured using other variables that you did have measured. And they have shown that for organ dysfunction scores, assuming normal values when data is missing tends to perform pretty well. There's a large study out of Australia right after the adult sepsis 3 came out uh, where they were looking at the SOFA score in a very large database and they did various methods that they showed that that was, that was the case, that, that you can assume that those variables are normal. So that's the approach that we took for those completely missing variables. I appreciate that. And I have to put a plug for the paragraph in your supplemental methods where you say the time intervals you used for each variable. I appreciated that as well. Next, I want to talk about the patients you included. So anyone reading this document or listening to today, they want to know, does the the parameters that you set, your team set, do they apply to our patients here locally? Will you speak to the patients included and specifically the balance between high and low resource settings, underrepresented minorities, and kids who are technology dependent? Yeah, so obviously when you have access to 3.6 million records, you have the ability to have a very diverse, uh, very representative database. Focusing first on the high-resource countries where we have sort of race ethnicity data. Race ethnicity data is based on NIH sort of mandates. They're not very relevant in international data sets. In fact, often not recorded. There's no mm-hmm. self-reporting of your race ethnicity when you are in China, for example. So just focusing on the on the diversity in terms of within the U.S. sites. If you look at the table of, I think it's one of the supplement tables where we have the race ethnicity on the, on the entire database, you can see that traditional sort of majority white non-Hispanic patients are actually less than 30% of the entire high resource setting database. So, you know, majority of traditionally underrepresented groups in research. We also have obviously a very high diversity in terms of having high and low resource patients. There's a difference in the numbers. So if you look at the subset of patients that we really care about the most, which is patients with suspected infection, 200,000 out of those 3.6 million, those were the basis of the most of the analysis that we did. About 170,000 were from high resource settings, about 30,000 from the low resource settings, if I remember correctly. However, the mortality difference was significant between those two groups. When you're doing modeling where you're basing your model on a specific outcome or a specific event, in this case, as I was mentioning earlier, we're grounded on this concept of life-threatening organ dysfunction, so we're really focused on mortality. The mortality was actually similar in absolute numbers. So there was about the same number of deaths in the low-resource settings, 30,000 patients, as there were deaths in the high-resource setting, which makes it so that when we're fitting these different models, 
machine learning models to the absolute number of deaths on both sites, that's a very balanced way of doing it. So meaning that even though we had less low resource settings at the modeling stage, they were equally represented because we were mostly focused on those patients with mortality. The models are being trained to look for those patients primarily. So that allows us to maintain sort of balance across those two resource setting groups. Excellent. Did I miss anything? Those were chronic medical complexity and... and Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah. We also had a a lot of diversity in terms of the the classic patients that we see in pediatric settings, especially acute care setting, which is, you know, including patients with comorbidities, particularly those with complex comorbidities. Those are patients who oftentimes will have a different risk profile. You can think about patients with malignancies, patients who are technology dependent, etc., I can't remember the exact numbers. They're there in the in the papers, but it's a large proportion of our patients, maybe 30%, if I recall correctly, that meet the technology dependence, at least in the high resource settings. So again, we're capturing all those patients with sort of higher risk for poor outcomes because of their sort of underlying comorbidities. So I think we did a good job of incorporating all those patients into our analysis. Excellent. So you've done all this work and you've ended up with four core organ systems. How did you get there? So this is an important part of the methods. Once we had sort of the highest performing subcomponents for each organ system, we had to estimate how each one of those components would contribute globally to the risk of mortality in patients with infection, right? So we have the subcomponents of organ dysfunction. Now we want to develop a composite model of those subcomponents. The best methodology to do that in a very interpretable way is using stack regressions, which uses different models stacked on top of each other, for lack of a better way of explaining that. So if we have the subcomponent mini models stacked together to make this composite model, that's how you can think of stack regression. Stack regression is an interesting methodology in the sense that you can use different top-level models, meaning how do you actually construct that composite model. And based on which high-level model you're using, you're going to end up with slightly different composite models. We use various forms of what's called penalized regression. Penalized regression is a way of building models where you try to reduce the variables and the weights of each variable to the minimum necessary. And particularly, oftentimes, penalized regression is used to find so-called parsimonious models, so the models that have good accuracy but have less number of variables, so that making a little bit simpler. Some of these that we use included the lasso model as well as the elastic NAND and the ridge regression. The two models that performed the best when we used all the subcomponents and built two models were the ridge regression and the lasso model. Both of them had very similar performance when we looked at the area under the precision recall curve. As I remind the audience, that was our main measure of performance. So much that the two had performed so, so similarly that we didn't have a data reason based on the data to choose one over the other. The difference, sort of the clinical difference of the two, is that the lasso model penalized much more the number of variables, and it reduced the model from eight possible organ systems to just four organ systems. So the eight possible organ systems that we included based on the subcomponents that were included from all the original organ dysfunction scoring systems were respiratory, cardiovascular, neurologic, coagulation, immunologic, hepatic, renal, and endocrine, right? So eight possible organ systems. The ridge included all of those organ systems with their specific weights, and the lasso model only included four of those organ systems, so the respiratory, cardiovascular, neurologic, and coagulation. And with only those four, it was able to have the same performance as the eight-organ system model, meaning that you only needed those four organ systems to explain the mortality in patients with infection, meaning that probably those other organ systems that were not included had to go through one of these organ dysfunctions. 
for example, one that was a little controversial, for example, the renal organ dysfunction that was not included in the final model. One could probably imagine that what's happening here is that most patients who have mortality in the setting of renal failure due to sepsis are probably also patients who are having cardiovascular dysfunction. Uh, so septic shock leading to AKI or AKI that's worsening your septic shock. Or maybe these patients are having respiratory dysfunction, right? AKI may be exacerbating respiratory failure in the setting of fluid overload. Or these patients may be having coagulation dysfunction where you have this DIC picture, you know, TAMOF picture where AKI is a component of those. So you don't have the isolated I have just kidney failure and then I'm dying from sepsis. You're having kidney failure and you have to go through one of these four organ systems in the causal pathway towards death. The model very elegantly picked up on this, what we think, at least for me, it's biologically possible that, that you need to go through these four organ systems to die from organ dysfunction in the setting of an infection. So faced with this four organ system model and the eight organ system model, we went back to our brain trust, which is the task force, and we put it in front of them and say, hey, these two perform very similarly. This one has four organ systems. This one has eight. And this one has maybe a couple of lab tests. And this one has, you know, four or five lab tests. Right away, the representative of the low resource setting sites were like, absolutely, the four organ system, this is what we should move forward with. And I would say a big majority of the ones representative of high resource settings, even thinking about their own practice, were like, oh, absolutely, if I can do it with less variables, why would I need more? And lastly, the concern that if you need more variables, that also may take a little bit longer time to get all the information for each patient and may delay, you know, the diagnosis of sepsis. So the idea was more parsimonious, similar accuracy, more generalizable across different settings, and people were very happy with the idea of, of having the four organ system be the criteria for, for sepsis, so what we call the Phoenix sepsis score, based on those four organ systems. But there was still interest on keeping the eight organ system as a scoring system that we could use to describe patients with sepsis, right? So renal failure is not important, right? It's an extremely important piece of sepsis management. Hepatic failure is an extremely important piece of management of patients with sepsis. Endocrine dysfunction, right, etc. So we wanted to have still a tool that we can measure those organ systems for the management of patients with sepsis and for the study of patients with sepsis in research studies, but not necessarily have to use those for the definitions of sepsis, for the diagnosis of sepsis as a life-threatening organ dysfunction in the setting of an infection, right? We needed those four organ systems for the life-threatening organ dysfunction component, but we wanted the eight organ systems available for research, for management, for describing the diversity and the heterogeneity of sepsis in real life. So we kept that eight organ system as an additional organ score that we published along with the sepsis score, which is what we call Phoenix 8, because of the eight organ systems that it represent. And happily, the Phoenix 8 performs much better than PILA2, PSOFA, and all these other organ systems, even in the validation set. So we're really happy that we had a really well-performing organ dysfunction score that can be used across all patients with sepsis for the purposes of description, management, etc., but not for the diagnosis, which is the four organ system Phoenix sepsis score. Excellent. It's fascinating you're able to get so much value just out of those four organ systems. And I think simplicity is key here when thinking about being in the bedside with all the many variables that we deal with. I think being able to distill it down to four different organ systems will bring value for a bedside clinician. And thank you. For listening to this episode of Pete's Crit. Please remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as a replacement for medical advice. It's also worth noting that the views expressed during this episode by me, Zach, and our guests are our own and do not reflect the official position of our institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscritpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to help support the production of Pete's Crit, you can find us on Venmo and Patreon. 
We've also had some light merch made in the form of Pete's Crit laptop stickers. And if you include a mailing address with any contribution, we would be so excited to send you one. Thank you again for listening.